1: That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
2: This is Dmitry Samarov from Chicago, Illinois, and I love listening to Vish Khanna's Creative Control because whether he's talking to a favorite musician or actor of mine or someone I've never heard of, it's as if he's introducing me to a new friend, and the way things are going, couldn't you use a new friend? Listen now. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. Creative Control with Vish Kana. Alyssa Cole is an award-winning and prolific American author who has received raves from the likes of the New York Times, Vulture, Library Journal, and Entertainment Weekly, and she currently calls the Caribbean island of Martinique home. Originally from Jersey City and a one-time Brooklyn resident, Cole writes historical, contemporary, sci-fi, and romantic novels, often rooted in the experiences of black life and black characters, which don't historically feature so prominently in such genre fiction. In the fall of 2020, Cole's psychological thriller, When No One Is Watching, was published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins. The book explores the insidious aspects of gentrification and how classism and racism Inform the displacement of longtime residents and erase community histories and community spirit. Alyssa and I recently connected for a conversation about her life in Martinique and her perception of America from afar, the story of When No One Is Watching, and at least one other book she published around the same time that I neglected to read. Sorry. The growing interest in black stories in mainstream pop culture, but also the increased prominence of white supremacy affordable housing and the evils of real estate, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free including performances by past podcast guests like Zaki Ibrahim. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 597th episode of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant novelist Alyssa Cole, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi Alyssa, how are you?
1: I'm good. how are you doing
2: i'm well. I'm well. First of all, where in the world are you?
1: I am in Martinique, which is in the French Caribbean
2: Now that sounds amazing that <laughs> sounds I mean for those of us enduring the winter uh, I'm here in Canada, so that sounds good. How is that in reality <laughs> is it Is it as good as it sounds?
1: There are some really great parts and also some parts that you know I moved here from New York. So some things like missing pizza and bagels and winter. (laughs) Sometimes me and my husband put on like these YouTube videos that are just like Nordic, (laughs) Nordic scenescapes with snow and ice. And it's like, oh, remember that? (laughs) I I like,
2: don't you find like living, I guess, like I grew up in Ontario and now I live in Alberta. Uh, Canada, very dynamic in terms of, the seasons, you know, you get seasons. But then you live on a tropical island. It feels like there's not seasons, right? There's less change. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, like it get, it does get cooler. Like right now it's cooler than it is in the summer, obviously. But it is weird. Like the first Christmas is here. And even now it's a bit strange. Like it's festive, but it's not the same. Like I tried getting a, a real Christmas tree. Right. Um, we tried it a couple of years, but like they basically get shipped over here, like on cargo ships, with everything else, and then like sometimes it's just like already dried out. <laughs> the needles are falling off. Now we just have a fake Christmas tree, which is fine, uh, but you know things like that, like Christmas lights with the palm trees, seem so strange to me still. Well, um, you know I, that's I, a
2: I, that's a cultural thing a little bit. I would say because I remember yeah yeah my parents are from India and uh, they moved here. Uh, I was born in Canada, but they uh, the first few times my earliest Christmas memories are of them uh, like being told that they had to have a Christmas tree by somebody, and what they did <laughs> because they didn't know what that meant they took like a house plant and stuck like a the shaft of a hockey stick in it. And then tied lights around the hockey stick. Like, that's my first Christmas tree. Yeah. So they're trying to assimilate, but they didn't really like when you try to explain to someone. So wait a minute. Once a year, you chop down a tree (laughs) and then you put it in your house where it will die. Like, I mean, you've killed a tree and then you put it. you put a bunch of stuff on it. And that's what does that signify? Like, it's very. And you confusing. just look
1: at it. Uh, it's all of that work for nothing. There are some cool Christmas cultural things here. Like there's something called Chante Noel, mm-hmm. which is kind of like Christmas caroling. You either go to sometimes they have it at a community hall and also people have it at their homes um and sometimes there is a band or a live band or sometimes you just play a recording and it's basically like singing there's a book with all of the um, island christmas carols oh. which are in french and in creole hmm. and you just all sing together <laughs> and it's like i mean obviously christmas caroling is a thing in the in the north america but it's not quite as popular where i'm from right <laughs> and you don't really gather like that to sing so it's like something that's a strong part of the culture here and was weird to me, but is also like really cool and something that now we incorporate into our Christmas celebrations.
2: So often uh, when other cultures uh, you know uh, adapt uh maybe I guess what western western type Chris- Christmas songs, they take the melody, maybe they add different words, there's different meanings mm-hmm. here and there. Are there you know fully original? Caribbean Christmas songs that you've encountered? Like they're just like um, about Caribbean life or are you singing? How do you sing jingle bells? About, you know, dashing <laughs> through no the j- snow. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no jingle bells, right? There's
1: no jingle bells. The, most of them are taken from, um, so everyone here speaks French or French Creole. Right. And so some of them are taken from, you know, French Christmas carols and some seem to be fully Creole Christmas carols. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure they might have some origin and french songs that i don't know
2: i see okay
1: Uh, but there is no there's no jingle bells there is silent night and oh holy night and you know the classics like that
2: right the religious stuff is pretty much left (laughs) intact right so but but are there then by the same token are there original songs that you've encountered you're like wow that is a (laughs) that is a different twist on the christmas (laughs) song that i did not expect
1: Um, there are songs that seem original to me because they're like about island stuff. (laughs) Um, But, (laughs) and you know, about like, you know, talking to your neighbor or calling to your neighbor. And a lot of it is call and response and like, you know, drums. And like, if you don't have a live band and you're listening to the recording, someone will pull out a drum or, you know, bang on a bottle with a spoon. So like that kind of twist is the fun part. It's like very like you're often dancing and it's not just like standing there and singing. Like, usually it's like very like a dance party plus Christmas carols.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, that that sounds it sounds magical on on the one hand. Uh, and I'm sorry you're you're missing the ice and snow. I can't I've never said that before. No one's ever missed the ice and snow. But <laughs> I appreciate it. We don't, you don't know what I mean. I think that's something we've all been enduring during the pandemic. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. You don't know what you're mm-hmm. missing. You kind of take it for granted. So. Yeah, you're. I I mean, it's true here in like in in America and Canada, the words "green Christmas" are so upsetting to people. Like, there's no snow. <laughs> it was a green Christmas. People get really upset. So, like, you're just constantly in a green or sandy yes. sandy Christmas zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I never really asked you why you are there. Why did you leave New York for for Martinique?
1: Um, I actually got married, and my husband is a teacher here. And I was an editor, so it was easier for me to work remotely and to to move here than for him to, you know, the school systems are different and uh, the visa process is different for moving to the U.S. than from moving to moving to France. So in the end, it seemed like it would be easier for me to move here. And it was also like a fun, you know, getting to live on an island. Um, And like I vastly overestimated my Uh, level of French before I moved here Ah, like
2: (laughs) yes yes
1: and I'm like I've been here for six years and um, you know I can speak I can speak okay Uh, my tutor is very supportive of me but there's also you know there's French and then because there's French and French Creole here there's a different accent Yes. Um, Yes. So sometimes people don't understand me or sometimes I don't understand people. And also sometimes people and I feel like this happens in a lot of places like they hear my accent, even though I'm speaking French. Yes. And some people are like, oh, I don't speak English. And I'm like, I'm speaking to you in French.
2: (laughs) They hear the elocution and assume it's English. You know, that's famously in Quebec. If you have French, if you're if you're not from Quebec and you have French. And you attempt to say order a meal. Remember restaurants when you used to be able to go to a restaurant <laughs> and you tried to order a meal in French, and they could detect that you know you you were you would come from away so to speak, they would revert to English. Which my wife mm-hmm. my wife went to school and did French immersion, so she was always you know self consciously she was self conscious about it, like trying to speak French and keep her chops up. But they would revert to English, and she felt highly insulted. You know, like, give me a break here. I'm doing my best. And like, I won the French award in grade eight and grade nine, but it's gone. I miss my French. I It's a big regret of mine. I need to fix it. I want to learn French again. My kids are in French immersion, so I'm, and they make fun of me. They make fun, my, my daughter's sick. She's like, Papa, what does this mean? How, what's this word mean? And I say, well, that means horror. She's like, oh, every time I get it right, she's upset. So anyway, I don't know if you've got that situation going on. Do you have children? Do you have children who are trying to learn French?
1: No, I do have uh, multiple bilingual pets,
2: Pets, (laughs) which are not the
1: same as not the same as children. Very similar. Uh, Very
2: similar behaviorally (laughs) uh, in terms of upkeep. I'd say it's quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, So you're they're learning French a little bit now. Uh, because yeah,
1: well, they're like, French, and sometimes they speak, when I speak to them in English, sometimes they pay attention, and sometimes they just pretend they don't know what I'm right, saying.
2: Right, right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it is, uh, it is nice to uh, get to speak to you, and the occasion uh, is uh, I just finished your uh, novel, When No One Is Watching, which, as we're speaking, I believe is your latest work. Is that fair?
1: Um, actually, I had another book come out in December. Oh, my goodness. Okay. A- which is a romance. It's called How to Catch a Queen, and it's the kickoff of a spinoff series called The Runaway Royals. And it's basically it's a political romance about an arranged marriage in a modern set in a modern day fictional African kingdom oh. um, that is basically dealing with a lot of the things places all over the world are dealing with, which is figuring out how to balance modernity with tradition the needs of their people with tradition and um, how to create a better, well, this is the fictional uh, fantasy part, how to make a better world for their citizens um, in addition to moving forward with, you know, into modern times. I
2: see. Okay. Well, I've I obviously, uh, uh, first of all, congratulations on that. I've yet to read uh, that Thank book. You. I just finished. Uh, so wait, just so we're clear and I don't seem totally out to lunch. Uh, when no one is watching came out in what year then
1: oh, it came out in September of 2020 and the next book came out in december of how
2: what how how can you do that how are you you've written a lot of books right? like that's I looked at your you know when the book yeah. tells you you're you're reading a book and it says uh, for further reading or read more <laughs> from and I was looking at it I'm like, holy Lord, I can't there's so many of these books. How many books have you written?
1: Uh, I actually don't know. In the teens, the high teens, I think. And since
2: since when? When did you first publish your first book?
1: My first book was published in 2014.
2: So you're in the teens already. That's only seven years. That's remarkable. You're just (laughs) on a prolific clip. I mean, how did you even get started doing this? Because that's a lot of people when I talk to, you know, when I speak with authors or when I speak to people about authors, the audacity. You know, the audacity of thinking, I can write stories, I can write books, that baffles people. How do you even motivate yourself? Do you remember what was the spark for you to get writing?
1: Um, well, I've always written, like, even when I was a kid. One of the things was that, you know, I once I learned how to read, I just became a prolific reader and was reading everything in my parents' bookshelves and the school bookshelves and a lot of the time, it was really difficult to see. I mean, I love books, but it was often difficult to find people who looked like me and my friends. And uh, like I grew up in the Bronx and then Jersey City. And so I was surrounded by people from all over the world. And then I would read books and like everyone looked the same. Hmm. And so generally when I was writing stories, it was like, you know, people who look like me and my friends and um, just getting tired of reading about the same kinds of characters. And then that kind of just carried over (laughs) into into my adult writing, I guess. Right. And I basically knew I wanted to be a writer. Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be either a writer or a comic book artist or a paleontologist because (laughs) I was a a child of the 90s. I watched Jurassic Park. I had my little fossils from the Museum of Natural History. And I stopped, you know, really drawing. So maybe that will happen one day if I actually put some effort into it. But I always uh, was writing short stories and I was like, one day I'll write a book, one day I'll write a book. And you know, like the running joke when someone wants to write a book and my friends were like, oh yeah, one day you'll write that. Or yeah, that'll happen when you write your book. And then it was really around 2010 when I realized Uh, If I wanted to write a book, I had to write it like it wouldn't just magically happen one day. Right. Like I would have to put in the work of actually finishing the books that I was starting instead of just starting new books. And the first time I finished a book was actually for I found out about National Novel Writing Month. Hmm. And, you know, which is uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's in every November. And I think they also have Camp NaNoWriMo in April. Which is you try to write a fifty thousand word book in thirty days, oh, and the, wow, the point, yeah, and uh, the point of this is not always, you know, to have a publishable book, but to show yourself that you can do it, or to make a, a draft that you can then, you know, edit intensely or add to to have a completed book. I had a story that. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. And there's a website and they they have like sprints and, you know, in non COVID times, they would have people meeting at coffee shops to write together. So it's like a really community based effort that kind of helps you feel uh, motivated to finish.
0: Yeah. And even
1: if you don't finish, you have something more than what you started with.
2: So, so to building motivations and also forming, you know, so, you know uh, I guess fostering that camaraderie among writers because it's such a solitary pursuit. I, I've talked mm-hmm. to many writers who are lamenting the fact that they, they put out books this year and they can't get together for, you know, uh, writers' festivals or other kinds of events. Yeah. And it's uh, frustrating to them because you spend all this time on your own, more or less. I mean, it's fascinating to me that you mentioned that part of the activity is getting together to write together. I've not heard of that. I mean, most people tend to write with it well i guess you work with editors and stuff that's true uh but i've never th- you don't often think of uh, unless it's a collaborative work you don't often think of a, a solitary writer uh collaborating with too many external people you know what i mean
1: yeah and it's like that's the fun part because you can go you can write take a few minutes to talk to someone or if someone gets stuck on something they can say oh man i'm stuck on this idea so it's like a really fun experience. And there are people who have participated for years and years and like, you know, maybe not winning or succeeding every year, but getting work done on books and like working on set, moving toward the goal of finishing. a yeah, book.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. No, it's fascinating. I, mean, I want to home in on something you said earlier about how uh, you were seeing when you observed uh, writing, you noticed that most people looked the same. And uh, and they didn't look like uh, you and your friends or sound like you and your friends. Can you elaborate upon that? I feel like I know where you're coming from, but can you speak on that a little bit?
1: So basically, and, you know, there have always been writers of color, but the availability of the books when I was younger just wasn't the same as it is now. And publishers also weren't putting out as many books as they are now, it seems And so most of the books I was reading were books by white authors with white characters. Hmm. And, you know, I love so many of those books. But at a certain point, you start to wonder, like, okay, do kids like me get to have adventures? Do kids like me get to have, like, romance and go through portals and, you know, all of the other stuff that you're reading again and again in these other books and in these books? So I think part of it was just being like, "Well, this seems to be a problem." Um, I love writing. Maybe I can I can write these stories for myself, and then eventually that led to, "Well, if I feel this way, maybe there are other people who want to read these things too, or who feel left out of this too." Yeah, Um,
2: yeah. Seems to be a particular emphasis on this in the last decade. Uh, When I think of the when when you think of like in pop culture, the work of Jordan Peele, of course. Uh, with the horror films he's made and the, the sci-fi elements of those. Lovecraft uh, Country. Did you watch Lovecraft Country, by chance?
1: I did. I didn't finish yet, but okay. I did. And the beginning, was, it was the episodes I saw were just great. Yeah. And it kind of actually, what you said kind of is something that really resonates with me. And even if you watch Black Panther, yes. when I was watching it, and you see, like for me when I was watching it, when, I mean, I loved the movie, but also I was like, I can see this very specific thing where there there were elements of, you know, superhero movie, James Bond movie, sci-fi, and, like, all of these different elements put together. And it was, like, I can see that. In a, I, and I don't know if it was consciously done, but, like, here are all of the things where we've never really gotten to see ourselves in a movie. Yeah. And it seemed like he was consciously trying to fit in what was possible in the movie to kind of explore all of these things that have typically not included Black people. I feel like a lot of creators have that feeling of like, okay, here are all of these different genres where we aren't represented. And if you have the opportunity, yeah. <laughs> you're like I'm going to try to get, uh, get us into as many genres as we, well, that's part of it's not, and it's not even like a like a manifesto or like a, a really conscious thing, for me at least. It's like afterwards, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, well, this is just something I like, and I want to see, you know, a variety of people in. So I'm gonna write it. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: fascinating though because the the I, I appreciate what you're saying about notions of representation in this type of media, and and you are also someone who, uh, in this book that I just read, you know, science fiction. Uh, has a role, so to speak, but it's intertwined or at least nef- nefarious aspects of yeah, no, I yeah, I would say there's some dystopian, obviously some dystopian stuff going on in your book, Jordan Peel's work, Lovecraft Country. What I was going to say mm-hmm. is I find it fascinating that beyond simply asserting, you know, representation of black people uh, in, in these genres that are you know infamously or, or at least historically do not include them in a prominent role. Often, racism is intertwined within it. So these things go, they're not only exploring these sort of genre stories, they're incorporating lived experience, they're incorporating racism. So it becomes a sort of meta exercise. Like not only are we, uh, you know, asserting ourselves into these genres where we've been excluded from, we're going to talk about a possible, one of the, the subplots or main plots is going to be the reasons why uh so yeah. you know what i'm saying like, i'm sorry I didn't, yeah yeah it's it, that's fascinating to me that racism plays a role in most of the stories we're seeing do you have any perspective on why that would be
1: i think in a way it's a type of processing and a type of catharsis and also a way of addressing it without having to like write a thesis and like this is nothing against thesis <laughs> writers <laughs> or academic writers but um, for me often when so I write romance and within romance I write sci-fi historical and contemporary and now I write thrillers yeah and when I'm thinking about these things, you know often when it comes to genre literature or genre media, people kind of see it as unimportant. But in reality, so many more people are consuming genre media than they are reading history books Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or like reading a nonfiction history book or watching like a documentary. So for me, when I'm writing these things, and again, I'm often just writing about things that I'm interested in, but I feel like it's in a way a safer space to explore tough topics like racism um, and misogyny and like you know, white supremacy and government and things like that, because you are crafting this world and you can also choose how to address it and how it gets resolved. Yeah. And I think that for, you know, creators coming from groups that have been traditionally marginalized, being able to do what you love, create the art that you love, but also to address things that uh, can be difficult to address like in a straightforward conversation or can be things that people would shy away from if it was in a straightforward format of like, here is a documentary about racism as opposed to here is Get Out.
2: Yeah, I, I would think a, maybe an analogy that works is like writing a catchy protest song. Like you you you, yeah, you, yeah. you you package the message in a way that is infectious and palatable, more palatable. So you're getting to the... The issues, but you're also like trying. You're trying. What's the, I guess the expression would be: you're not only trying to provoke thought, but you're trying to move bodies. Like you're trying to get people to viscerally react to something, um, yeah. on some level. So I can see you. I can see where you're coming from there for sure. Um, I do want to get into your book because, and again, I apologize for not keeping up with your prolific publishing schedule <laughs> it's okay. but this is what it's we, okay this was sent to me in the fall and i started reading it and then other things happened and then i started reading it again recently and i i really really loved it and uh thank you and i i guess i i may not be a a genre reader on some level like this is a bit different than the fiction i usually read uh and i but i was totally drawn in it obviously has a cinematic kind of flavor like i can picture it, like it's very vividly written i will say and I, I hope someone picks this up and turns it into something beyond this. Not that that the book is fine; the book is enough. You've done a great job with this, but that's where my mind always goes. Like, wow, I can. Some, do you ever have that? You read a thing and you 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 have. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you want to see someone manifest it? Like the yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah. So just sort of to catch people up uh, who haven't yet uh, partaken of this book, can you summarize uh, the the plot and story? I suppose of. When no one is watching, because I I don't want to do it in an injustice and I'd like to hear it from you. Do you mind doing that?
1: Oh, I don't mind. The book is basically, uh, it's about a woman named Sydney Green who has moved away from, was born and raised in Brooklyn. She moved away for a few years and she comes back home expecting to kind of rebuild her life. She had a tough time. She comes back home trying, expecting to rebuild her life, uh, moves back into the, bu- the building, that, the brownstone that her mom owns. And, you know, she's thinking things will go back to normal. But because of gentrification, uh, everything is changing around her. And uh, it's basically a gentrification psychological thriller. Um, you know, the tagline is rear window meets get out. Yeah. And it's basically she decides to, you know, her mom is sick. Uh, she's like extremely stressed out and still dealing with the fallout of some mental health issues, um, and she decides to make a walking tour of her neighborhood that celebrates the history of the residents who have who live there and Black history of the the neighborhood. Right. And she gets an unexpected research assistant in her new neighbor Theo. Uh, who is a white man who has moved to the neighborhood with his girlfriend? And he's going through it basically, they're both going through it in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> they both have secrets and they kind of stumble upon what might be a conspiracy, a gentrification conspiracy, or it might be Sydney spiraling into some kind of mental health issues. And you have to read it to find out what's (laughs) (laughs) up. Yes, we will be careful
2: not to give too much away here, of course. So people (laughs) are enticed to read it. Yeah, but this is fascinating. I think a lot of us have pondered gentrification from different angles, particularly nefarious ones. What was it about gentrification that sparked your interest in it? Uh, And to take this particular tack with it, because it's a fascinating idea. I left the book being like, I know that in like a few days, I'm going to be like, maybe it's all true. Maybe that is what (laughs) gentrification is. You know
1: what I mean? Honestly, one of the weirdest things is seeing things in the news. I mean, it's based, it's very much rooted in reality at several, you know, some of it is not, uh, I hope, but (laughs) (laughs) a lot of it is. (laughs) Like all of the history in the book. Um, and part of it comes from um, I've written several historical romance novels and novellas uh, set in America in different time periods from 1776 to 1960. And, you know, I have a series set during the Civil War.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And kind of, you know, as I've researched all of these periods over the years, you see the same kind of oppression and kind of just malevolence against like marginalized groups crop up over and over again. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a trained historian, but I imagine they feel the same way sometimes researching things and then looking at the news and seeing similar things happening again. And it just kind of feels like, is anyone noticing (laughs) that this stuff just keeps happening? That's a very fascinating,
2: Um, it's a fascinating perspective given what you're, well, what America is going through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in particular, like, just seemingly, just weirdly ahistorical. Even when people point out, like, wait a minute, we've already gone through this. Like, yeah, why yeah. are we doing this again? I mean, I don't mean to get too political, but even voting for Republicans, it seems like someone pointed this out on Twitter the other day. Like, every time there's a Republican administration, yeah. the economy is left in shambles. Democrats are left to clean it up, but then they're voted out again. Like, why? It's like people have both long-term and short-term memory issues when it comes to history obviously the rise of white uh, rise it's not even a rise the yeah. the uh i guess renewed interest in white supremacy <laughs> uh yeah. I, I will say like from mainstream media like oh yeah we should probably pay attention to this thing where you know people of color are like yeah this has always been there you know like yeah so uh, anyway yeah it is that's an interesting point too that that people don't pay attention or or Pay attention to case studies where other cities have endured uh, gentrification, which seems on its surface to be a clean, nice, shiny, happy, clean thing. But no one talks about the displacement of marginalized people. And where do these people go uh, when they're moved out of places? Yeah. So.
1: And one of the things that, you know, I lived in Brooklyn for many years. And like I said, I grew up in Jersey City, which if you're unfamiliar, it's basically right across the Hudson River from mm-hmm. New York City mm-hmm. and has now become, uh, you know, before it was, you know, it used to be the place no one wanted to move to, much like Brooklyn. And now it's also become gentrified. So, you know, going home to visit my family and seeing these like huge new buildings and all of the different, you know, bars and... Luxury things. So, going back home to Jersey City and seeing all of these, uh, you know, basically markers of gentrification, which in some ways are good, you know, it's not like it's all bad. But then also, one of the things that really sparked this for me was that uh, my parents bought this house 20 years ago at this point, the house that they live in, but then the neighborhood became desirable. And it was like, you know, the gov- the local government saying, oh, yeah, we're just going to make all these changes and everything will be great. And then a couple of years ago, they just really jacked up the property taxes right. and basically made them so high that no one will be able to live there unless they are making a certain amount of money per year, basically, if they're already rich. Yeah. And the people who live there already, like, you know, many of whom have lived there most of their lives, if not all of their lives, will have to move because trying to pay the property tax for one year would like cut into a huge portion of their income so it's like the things like that that are not necessarily like physically strong-arming people out of their homes but just finding all of these ways that are legal to or bending the rules of legality even sometimes and then like you know the people realtors showing up to try and get you to sell your house and, yeah. and, you know, can be good for some people if they are looking to move and they can make a nice profit from the, you know, the, the difference between what they paid for the house and what it costs now. But then there are also people who, you know, if they move, where are they going to go? Because their whole community that they've had for their entire life has been in this neighborhood.
2: Well, I'm not uh, complaining here uh, because my wife and I are both working and we uh, we feel fortunate in this era to be working our jobs. But we literally moved from Guelph, Ontario, where I lived and where we met. Uh, I lived there for 23 years. And we would bid on houses. We have two children, and we had a two-bedroom house and, uh, downtown uh, of that small little city, the university town, college town. And we moved all the way to Edmonton, Alberta, where her parents are from, Uh, to be Mm -hmm. ostensibly to be close to them, but we also got new jobs and all that stuff. But we moved ostensibly because we could not move within the city. We bid on like 12 houses and we could not get, like we'd be outbid by tens of thousands of dollars on these fixer uppers from people from Toronto who sold their, you know, million dollar (laughs) shitholes. And like (laughs) they, they just were able to do it and then they could outbid anyone in Guelph. So we were, I feel like, when people say, well, wow, you moved all the way across the country. And when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, we were we were vaguely displaced. Like, again, not complaining. We're yeah. we doing better than a lot of people probably are, uh, I would say, and feel comfortable in that and, you know, not feeling economic stress. But still, it was
0: a big yeah, move. And it's, yeah.
1: yeah, and it's like not entirely your choice to do it. And then you think of – and, like, one of the things – I mean, this is an idea that has been in my head. Basically, like, the first week I moved to Brooklyn, which was – what, 2005, mm-hmm. I guess, I very vividly remember that there was a man standing on his stoop arguing, uh, holding his child and he was arguing with the landlord. And he said, where am I supposed to go? Yeah. Like he was yelling at the landlord about raising the rent. And it's like one of those things that was so many years ago but always stuck in my head. And yeah. every time I would see new changes to the neighborhood I would think of like, where did this guy go? Because I was working, I mean, I wasn't, I was an editor. I wasn't making very much money at all. Yeah. But like, even I moved so many times when I lived in Brooklyn and each time, you know, and like the longest place the place i lived for the longest was like definitely an illegal apartment (laughs) that was one (laughs) apartment cut into two and then like when i moved in i realized there wasn't a kitchen sink and but like it was because that was what i could afford yeah Uh, yeah. i i made them put in a kitchen sink so i eventually had one (laughs) they initially told me i could wash my dishes in the bathtub and i was like hey Uh, (laughs) okay,
0: okay but like
1: you know it's that kind of thing and then like each time i could even like when I eventually was making a bit more money, I still had to keep moving out further and further because the rent prices were like going sky high at this point. Yeah. And I always, I would be looking at places in like Coney Island, which is like literally, you know, at the ocean. And I would be like, I can't even these places in Coney Island are getting super expensive. And like, where are people who are working minimum wage jobs or less than minimum wage jobs yeah. where are they going to be able to afford to live? We
2: have so many so it's some, yeah, we have so yeah. many sort of I don't know, parallel crises going on, but I do think that affordable housing, rent control, real estate, market manipulation kind of stuff like that should really be front of mind because I've, you know, I've worked with younger people than I, you know, in their 20s and their 30s and they just full on say no i'll never own a home like i've already they've already resigned yeah. themselves i'll never own a car even maybe you know i'll this is just the way it's going to be i'll i'll live where i can and i'll rent where i can but i'm like what the hell like what kind of that's the opposite of the promise that mm-hmm. i felt growing up like i just i mean i take these things for granted i assumed i maybe i didn't think about it too much but it, i actually i remember when my i suggested my wife and i look at the first house the the house we ended up buying But I didn't really think we could buy a house like it just, you know, when you're younger, you're like, can we buy a house? How do you buy a house? I don't know how to do that. (laughs) And then you do it and then you assume everyone you realize everyone sort of does it. But now I'm starting to realize that not everyone can do it. And I mean, some of that comes through in this book, in your novel. And it's it's a real problem that we kind of skirt around again. The pandemic has sort of taken over our all the mental energy we have, uh, you know, about and and also the loss of jobs. But that's all tied into it. That's all tied into where am I supposed to go? Where are we supposed to live without money? And when you keep raising property taxes, as you say, yeah, it's really... So on that level, I think your book is very timely and very relevant. Uh, Does it feel particularly relevant for pandemic times, do you think? Or is it Um, separate? It feels a bit
0: separate.
1: It feels a bit separate. It felt... Really, like, you know, after the past summer in the U.S., and yes. the book was coming out in September, it felt really uncomfortably relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of parallels to things going on. And one of, for me, one of the most disturbing ones was after the murder of Breonna Taylor, when uh, police oper- officers mistakenly executed a no-knock warrant uh, in the middle of the night in her house. And then later, it came to light that, Part of the reason for that was because there was a push, a gentrification push to clear the neighborhood, which was a historically black neighborhood. So they were trying to execute warrants on people to basically get them out of the apartments they were in if they were going to be in jail. So it's like one of those things like where obviously I knew about these things. I was researching all of these things. But then like it's like reality can sometimes be so much worse than what you were even creating in fiction that
2: is a weird aspect of science fiction that i don't think people talk about enough is that there's a prescience to science fiction writing i'm not saying this book this book uh, would you agree this book has elements of science fiction obviously towards the end maybe or
1: i think it does yeah it it
2: does a bit it does seem to me that there's prescience in science fiction writing i can't tell if it's like some sort of Self-fulfilling prophecy thing happening where enough people read a thing and then it comes true. <laughs> but like I feel like in your book, like you say, like weirdly it had this eerie prescience when we lost Brianna Taylor when the police murdered her, uh, and and when you read when you read more into it, this was a push towards gentrification. That's all in your book. People vanishing, disappearing, uh, you know, out of thin air, like people just minding their business and being removed, uh, or or. Or disappeared. I mean, that's very frightening. Yeah. And so you kind of conjured this and now you're but you conjured it based on some sense that maybe it could be true, I guess. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's kind of a lot of the things in the book are inspired by things I read and, you know, have experienced and are just historically true in the United States. And just like you know, one of the things too is kind of. And I don't read reviews, but sometimes when people tag me in reviews, <laughs> like I don't know, it's kind on of the worst. Kind,
2: of, kind of the worst, an, isn't it?
1: <laughs> on Instagram, it's like a beautiful picture of the book, and I'm like, oh, someone tagged me, and then it's like, this book was totally unbelievable, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, why did you tag me? <laughs> yeah,
2: people want but, people want you yeah. to know that they didn't like your stuff. Like I, that is a weird. Part of the Um, culture. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I definitely like I don't go through reading reviews looking for things to get um, upset about. But sometimes when I see people when I was seeing people saying that literally as there were these like, you know, huge marches and and peaceful protesters getting attacked by police officers. Yeah. I was like, what world are you living in where this was completely unbelievable to you? I mean, you don't have to like the book. You don't have to like the writing, but that the idea of it was unbelievable when you could literally turn on the TV and see some of the things that happen in the book happening in real life, unfortunately, was like, it was like, okay, well, this is why these things happen because they can literally, (laughs) they can literally be happening right in front of people's faces and they'll be like, oh, no, well, that's not, you know, they're like, something drives them to pretend it's not really happening or there must be some other explanation.
2: We have a real reckoning with reality that we have to deal with, uh, across the board. And, you know, as we're speaking, the conspiracy theories have never felt more intense, uh, and, and given more airspace, given more breathing room. And so when you realize what people are willing to believe, (laughs)
1: yeah and And this is the thing (laughs) this This is the thing to me because like you know you're gonna believe in like lizard people and like satanic whatever you know satanic cults and all of that other stuff but things that are like literally historically you can look it up in a a book you can look it up in FBI files you can there's Mm -hmm. historical record and people will be like well no I don't think it's true or I don't think it's that bad. And it's like, for me, the thing is like, obviously I can go very deep into conspiracy, but conspiracy rooted in reality, because some of the things that have happened in reality are much weirder than any like real life conspiracy theory. Like you think about like the FBI calling Martin Luther King and like trying to get him to commit suicide and like mm-hmm. all of the like random and like part of it too. and which is kind of a an undercurrent to what I was feeling when writing the book. It's like, there's all of this energy put toward, uh, you know, racism and negativity and oppression. And all of that energy is like, it's so useless. Yeah. It can be used for something so much better than these like really bizarre things that people do just in the name of like, white supremacy yeah. i know it's like it's yeah. when i think about it it's just really frustrating above anything else because i'm like there's really no logical reason <laughs> there are reasons <laughs> but when you think of it, it's like you're wasting all this energy like go take a nap i don't know it's just like we could be so much more advanced as a, a people if like the massive amount of energy that is put was put that is currently put into oppression was just directed elsewhere
0: yeah
2: i would agree and i will say like based on our you know the reading we've just sort of performed of your book unfortunately there are some conspiracies that are rooted in truth and so it it sort of gives credence to all conspiracy theories when one is proven to be correct so uh that's that's an issue that we're dealing with as well right like you can't Um, anyway, one
1: thing that one thing that was interesting was like, you know, I did a couple of book clubs and about there were I want to talk about the scenes because it would spoil it for anyone who didn't read. But people were like, oh, that was definitely based on this. Right. Like and they talked about a specific event, Mm -hmm. uh, historical event that happened. And I was like, no, I that was the part that I thought I made up completely (laughs) and unfortunately even the things that i thought i made up completely had happened um yeah and it was like unfortunately on a lesser not a lesser degree in a different way but basically the same thing and again this goes back to the thing of people saying that certain things were totally unbelievable and then Finding out that even the things that I was like, okay, if they want to talk about this one specific thing, then I guess I don't think it's unbelievable, but it is the thing that I made up. And then people being like, oh no, actually that really happened. Here's the link to this, the story, like that happened like you know 20 years ago in this place. And I was like, oh okay, so
0: <laughs>
1: really Again, there's nothing. Yeah, unbelievable. there's pre-
2: Yeah, so there's prescience. You we talked earlier about people uh, not you know you know repeating the past in an erroneous way, but we also repeat the past or the, the past and history can sometimes seep into us subconsciously. So you may yeah, have, you yeah. may have come upon that and thought you'd conjured this fantastical thing only to be told, you know, that actually happened. So maybe you, maybe you read it at some point, or maybe your intuition was that probably could have happened. And, you know, you're, um, you're,
1: I, you're, yeah, you're, I think that's yeah. generally, and like, I actually get that a lot with my various books yeah my one of my friends calls me um a witch but which is why I, which I have, I have started to try to write some like explicitly like because like one of my series is like that i'm working on now is a dystopian and i'm like okay i really have to make sure be careful about what i'm writing here um mm-hmm. yeah and uh, you
2: might have power you might have power you don't even realize <laughs>
1: But I think part of it is kind of just like absorbing, you know, reading, 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 and absorbing. And even if I didn't read the specific thing, like you said, reading enough to be able to imagine the possibility of a particular thing having happened. Yeah. Because I know other things have happened, and that would be like a possible step in a bad direction, (laughs) in a worse direction.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, we began this conversation talking about how you're on this Caribbean island in, in Martinique. And I i guess I wonder now that we're, you know, we've talked about what we've talked about. Are you kind of happy as an American to not be in America, given all that's going on? Like, I know we talked about how you miss snow and ice. So that's yeah, that's impossible. But, but politically, socially, like, is it is it interesting even to observe what's going on from afar?
1: It's really weird. Like, on the one hand, it feels bad because you know my family and most of my friends are all in the u.s so it's kind of like watching this you know boulder rolling down the mountain from far away and being like hey (laughs) get out of the way of that boulder but you know they they can't really do anything but at the same time and i've talked to someone about this before i've said that i don't know if i could have written this book if i was in the u.s Hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: because moving here and like here, it's not some perfect paradise. I mean, you know, it's very beautiful, but all countries have their issues.
2: Well, I mean, you're Um, talking about, you're talking about (laughs) gentrification. You're in a tourist trap there, right?
1: Yeah. 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 And it's, it's not quite as touristy as other islands, but there is, you know, that aspect and, you know, it's coming to play with COVID and having tourists come. Yeah. uh, And stuff like that. But you know, one of the things that I really realized when I moved here, because the island is majority Black, Mm -hmm. is that there is a different... I didn't realize how stressed out I was being in the U.S., even though I lived in New York. But it was things like, you know, when I go into a store, am I going to be followed around the store? Yeah. If a police officer stops me to talk to me, what's going to happen? Like, you know, things like that. Whereas here, like, there are just like all the like countless microaggressions or mm. not even microaggressions, just like logistics that are running in the back of your head at all times for what you will do if you encounter a certain situation yeah. that I don't have to think about here. Mm-hmm. Um, and like people have problems with the police here and stuff like that. You know, that's a, a separate thing, but it's. I don't know, it it kind of, I was like, there was this whole level of anxiety that I didn't realize I was carrying with me until I got someplace and was there for a period of time and realized, oh, if I walk into a store here, I'm not scared to like reach in my bag and answer my phone if my phone starts ringing or things like that. And that's also kind of a bit what went into Sydney's, in the book, her kind of, anxiety and uh, fatigue and mental health issues is that there is this kind of weight that, you know, black Americans Mm -hmm. and people from other marginalized groups to in one way or another have a target on them, carry with them at all times. This idea of like at any moment, something could happen Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't be able to do anything about it.
2: Yeah. The psychological toll of racism is, is I, I think, maybe only finally being addressed more regularly. Uh, it's just sort of been a, a, just a part of our society. But I think actually getting into how it impacts people, how they function, how what they're thinking when they leave their homes every day is finally starting to be recognized a bit more. And uh, with Sydney, you've certainly created a character who's bearing the the trauma of that. Um among other things. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's a beautifully written book and it's a really, uh, I, I will say it's an entertaining book if I may, like it's a compelling book. I, I lot. it's very heavy, but I hope people recognize that it's very entertaining.
1: Yeah. I really tried to, I didn't want it to be like trauma porn.
0: Yeah, like no, that, exactly. It, yeah. It,
1: it was very important to me. Like I wanted to really balance having these really heavy issues, but I wanted I also wanted people to laugh. I wanted there to be a bit of romance and like suspense because I feel like, and this is something I always, if I'm writing about a topic like that, I kind of, I feel like you really have to give the, reader uh breathing room (laughs) like you can't just have like this relentless like even if in reality stuff like this can be relentless like there has to be some breathing room and also like in reality even when things are really terrible there are still times when you laugh when you like are thinking about other stuff so i tried to really balance and make it entertaining as well as you know discussing these tough issues but i also want to to like enjoy themselves
2: while reading it. Yeah, it's provocative and and humorous and and like I said, I, I use the term entertaining as a catch-all uh, <laughs> for whatever that means. It'll make you upset. It'll make you laugh. Uh, it's 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 a thriller. It's a true thriller, if I might say. I want to ask you what's next. You alluded to a, a couple of things you were working on, but what what is in your immediate future? What are you trying to get done? Uh, what will we hear from you or see from you? I guess next.
1: I have some things I'm working on that I can't talk about yet. But the ne- this is a <laughs> the standard, a standard, that- <laughs> a standard refrain
2: from all of the writers I have on the show. Because yeah. totally understandable, but you alluded to some of them, so I ask.
1: The next book that is coming out uh, is called "How to Find a Princess." So How to Catch a Queen came out in December, and that was the first book in the series, and it's set in this kind of, it's like, in a way, it's like a Bluebeard retelling, Mm. a 1001 Nights retelling, but romance, like no one is getting killed. Like, spoiler, no one is dying in the book, (laughs) but kind of based on that. And the next book is um, a queer Anastasia
0: retelling of a
1: sort. Yeah. Uh, it's a modern day story with a woman who has really strong reasoning for not wanting anything to do with royalty. And then a really annoying uh, chaos Muppet investigator shows up on her doorstep telling her that she is most likely the lost, long lost heir to the throne of uh, a small island kingdom oh. and trying to convince her to go with her. And then they, you know, they have an adventure getting to the island.
2: Okay. So these things, that sounds fascinating. These things are in progress now or do they have release dates?
1: How to Find a Princess will be out on May 25th, I believe. Okay. And How to Catch a Queen is already out. All right. right, That's right. That's right.
2: That's the book I missed. Is that right? The one I've been beating (laughs) myself up over this whole time. Feeling badly? No, I'll I'll, I'll obtain a copy of that too. I want to read that. That sounds very, very interesting. Uh, If people want to, if you want people to kind of keep tabs on you and not, but also not tag you in questionable reviews (laughs) of your work, uh, where would you like to send them? I I know, I believe you have a website, right? AlyssaCole.com.
1: Yep, uh, AlyssaCole.com. And also you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at uh, AlyssaColeLit, L-I-T. Mm Mm-hmm and um on twitter i'm usually talking about book stuff on instagram you can see pictures of my pets and my chickens <laughs> oh chickens and- that sounds fun yeah. <laughs> a lot of upkeep with the
2: chickens right you got to keep chickens might like they were probably like the chickens were like what the hell we were in brooklyn now we're in
1: on this caribbean
2: <laughs> island this is great now there's french all the time what the hell's going on
1: these chickens actually like they were here when we moved into our house they were just like the first batch of chickens were uh, they were just kind of wandering around in the garden and then we started feeding them and then they were like well we are your chickens now and (laughs) that is how we came to be uh, chicken owners and then we also just have like a lot of roosters because you know then they had babies right baby babies turned to roosters I'm honestly surprised they haven't been crowing like on multiple podcasts. here, the dogs are the dogs are acting up now. Yeah, I can hear them. Yeah, it's, the <laughs> it's usually the roosters.
2: That's fascinating. You've got I've never heard of foul inclusions. You normally it's like <laughs> we want the washer, we want the dryer. No one's like, and you get we want the chickens, we want the roosters and the chickens. That's good. That's a good deal. You struck, I would say. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, the new or the latest, no, it's not even. I'll start this again. One of Alyssa's latest books is called When No One Is Watching. We've been discussing it. It's out on uh, William Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And uh, Alyssa, this was a, a real pleasure. Thank you for the time. And I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward.
1: Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you.
2: Very special thanks again to Alyssa Cole for appearing on this, the 597th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode, you've heard about it and you're looking for it, and you can't find it for some reason, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, bishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on facebook you can follow the show on twitter at vish creative or follow me directly on uh, twitter and instagram at vish please visit patreon.com creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast six dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content uh, that i put there on the uh, patreon there old audio interviews sometimes video stuff if i can find it I haven't really, as I'm speaking to you, I haven't put a lot of video stuff up. I haven't put any video stuff up there in the exclusives, but I'm going to. I'm sure I have stuff, and and I thought uh, if I do some new stuff, that's where it might live too. Uh, so anyway, six dollars or more on the uh, Patreon, you get cool stuff. Also, if you want a T-shirt, six dollars or more. Uh, just if you if you, if that's your if that's your donation, message me and I will send you a T-shirt while wow, supplies and sizes of those supplies last. Again, all you need to know patreon.com slash creative control Thanks again to live at where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by uh, great Canadian artists and also I want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph which is my adopted hometown and I, I miss it so much since we left and I wonder and I hope, well I wonder how those places are doing but I hope they're doing okay, okay. I imagine they're not doing great but during this pandemic but I hope they are Uh, please if you're in the area and they're open uh, for business go check them out also Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario similar deal love that place miss it and uh, all of those places offer in-kind support for this show so I can't thank them enough Uh, thanks too to uh, Jim Guthrie my pal Jim lends me some music for the show you can learn more about Jim and his wares at jimguthrie.org and finally thank you for listening to this episode with Alyssa Cole I hope you found it intriguing and are intrigued enough to check out her various books. She's probably written three books since I started this outro, and uh, they're probably all out, and I don't even know about them yet. That's the way it goes with Alyssa. She's very busy, and I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends to check it out, maybe do the same, spread the word about it, and uh, that's it. That's all I can ask. It's probably more than I can ask. Thanks for listening to this. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now.